Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. So, we have an interview with Lukashenko. A very, very interesting interview. I have lots of quotes. We're going to go through what he says and extrapolate some nice bits of information we can get out of him. So, without further ado, let's go. We have Lukashenko saying that part of the reason for Russian troops moving into Ukraine from Belarusian territory, because he was asked the question about why that happened, why Russian troops came into Ukraine through Belarus. If you remember, they came into the north, and they were around uh, they were around Chernobyl, Chernihiv, uh, and as well as Kiev. There were Russian troops throughout that entire area. They withdrew because of those peace treaties, the draft treaty that the Ukrainians initialed. They withdrew out of good faith, and then the Ukrainians went back on the treaty. But they were there, and they moved through Belarus to get there, which is something we talked about early on when the war first began, because there was just no other way that they would get there that fast. And, of course, we had the first instance of nuclear terrorism on the part of Ukraine trying to bomb Chernobyl, the power plant. So, uh, ah... It feels so long ago, doesn't it? But he was asked, uh, Lukashenko was asked, why Russian troops were moving through Belarus to do that. Now, Lukashenko essentially flips that and puts the blame on Ukraine, citing the presence of Tochka-U missiles along the border. These are like a ballistic missile system, uh, as well as various actions that Ukraine took against Belarus prior to the war and prior to the sanctions where Belarus was essentially blockaded from flying planes through Ukrainian airspace, uh, a thousand train cars of Belarusian fertilizer was essentially captured at the port of Odessa, and, and 74 Belarusian citizens were captured as well and essentially held hostage. Uh, I say held hostage, they were really just jailed. but. And he also says that they conducted a military operation to get them out, which they, they did in total secrecy. So that was one thing that came from this. He accused Poroshenko of refusing to make peace with Russia and essentially puts most of the blame for the lead up to the war on to Ukraine, but in the end saying that the failure of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia was to... It, all three of them were to blame for the war and because they failed to achieve a lasting peace, even though they were actively engaged. Now, he again, he points to both Poroshenko and Zelensky as refusing to make peace and refusing to come to peace talks and refusing to implement Minsk and the Minsk Accords. Minsk 1 and 2, namely Minsk 2, that's the one that was withstanding for eight years before the war. So... He, as the mediator, because that's the perspective he brings to this, he basically comes from the standpoint of, I've talked to both of you. One of you was open to negotiations and talks the entire time. The other was against it. And the, and the one that was against it was consistently Ukraine in his eyes. Uh, now, he, he also brought a small map of the region. Uh, he brought it with him, put it on the table. It, it's centered around, on Ukraine. So you can see all the countries around Belarus, uh, not around Belarus, around Ukraine, in including Belarus, Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Romania, Russia, etc. And he had the occupied territories uh, highlighted in a different color from the color that was Ukraine. And he makes several gestures toward that map when he's making his points. So 
I just thought that was an interesting detail uh, that he, well, brought a map. You, know? you, you always got to respect somebody talking geopolitics when they bring a map to the table. You know, now that's how you know that they they're serious. But anyway, he he said that Russia will actually no. Uh, I'm starting in the wrong place because he talks about how Ukraine isn't going to win. Talk about how Ukraine isn't going to win. And this is the part where he starts to point to the map. He goes, quote, here, I have specially drawn this map for you. Now, Russia will destroy you here. And when he says here, he's pointing to the area in the Donbass, around Bakhmut and around Kharkov, where most of the fighting is. He says, Russia will destroy you here, both manpower and equipment. Those motivated, ideologically strong Nazis, ideologically strong people are gone. They are all dead. Who is fighting there now? Those whom you catch on the streets and bring to the front line. They are not prepared. Well, there is some professional military, but they can't handle this war machine. Russia has reorganized itself. Russia is at the front today with the latest weapons. They ha- they already have enough drones. It is a completely different army. And the most dangerous thing is, and he, he uh, says some other things in between this before he continues this thought, he says the most dangerous thing is they have 250,000 volunteer corps. Russia has 250,000 volunteers who are now, and again, there's a, a brief break, who are now ready and in reserve, end quote. So here he's referring to the total number of volunteers, uh, the, the people who have alongside the mobilizations volunteered to join the Russian military, uh, which actually lines up just about perfectly with the numbers that we've been working the 80,000 that volunteered uh, when the first mobilization wave happened back in October of last year, when they the Russians called for 300,000 and they got an, an extra 80,000. Uh, we heard that on Scott Ritter. So that was 80,000. And then we got some more numbers just about a month ago saying how over the course of the entire, well, since 2023 began, 160,000 people volunteered to join the Russian military. So you combine 160,000 from just 2023 alone with the 80,000 that volunteered back in October of last year, that's 240,000. So it's just about matches up. So that's nice to get some cooperation here. And he's not necessarily parroting Russian intelligence. He's giving us information he has from Belarusian intelligence. And he makes it a point to bring up that they have their own eyes and ears on the ground. And well, not necessarily on the ground, but they have, they have their own ability to see and perceive and understand what's going on around them. And they have a good idea. He's basing all of what he's saying off of his own intelligence services. So that's one of the other reasons I feel that this is a very peculiar and interesting interview. 250,000. Now, he then asks the interviewer, quote, do you understand what 250,000 is? There are fewer Russians at the front now. He's talking about the actual front line. There's few. So that, that there's another piece of information there. 
he says that there's fewer than 250,000 on the actual front line, which is, again, a very interesting piece of info. That they've stalled the Ukrainian offensive with less than 250,000 men, and they have 250,000 reserves uh, uh, from 250,000 volunteers in reserve on top of the, again, million men that they've mobilized over the course of the war. Well, the one hundred, well, the, the two hundred and fifty thousand is included in that million because we counted the volunteers when we made that number. So they, on top of the two hundred fifty thousand volunteers, and he doesn't even bring up bring this up, they have seven hundred and fifty thousand conscripts on top of the two hundred fifty thousand volunteers. He doesn't bring that on up. He just focuses on the the volunteers. But he used the the volunteers to make his point. He goes, quote, do you understand what 250,000 is? There are fewer Russians at the front now. Here they are sitting on the defensive. It's not because they can't advance. No need. And Ukrainians go at them, you know, stone drunk, go at the ready as the German Nazis were shown in the films. They storm those barricades, but they don't even reach them. We see this, and again, he's referring to his own intelligence agency. We see this, and it's true. They can't even reach the minefields. Now, he continues saying, quote, You are simply being destroyed by the thousands. You have 45,000 people who died during the counteroffensive or left the front line crippled. So he's, that's 45,000 casualties, not deaths. 45,000. They are defending themselves. He's talking about Russia. They are defending themselves. Your losses are one to eight. One to eight losses at the front, and they have 250,000 in reserves armed with modern equipment. They will wipe you out, and then they will do what your leadership is most afraid of. They will cut you off to Moldova, to Transnistria. They will cut you off. What will you do then? And here, the Poles are rubbing their hands, pushing the Americans. They will cut you off. You will have this little piece of land left, if at all. What will happen to you? The state of Ukraine will be gone. It is a foregone conclusion. Now, in this, he's during that, he's pointing to the little map he brings. He runs his pointer down along the Black Sea coast that Ukraine has, because Russia cutting them off to Moldova, cutting them off to Transnistria. That means creating a land bridge to Transnistria. But in order to get a land bridge to Transnistria, you have to essentially rob Ukraine of its entire Black Sea coast, which makes Ukraine landlocked. And then when he says the Poles are rubbing their hands, pushing the Americans, he's basically saying that the Polish have American support to move into Western Ukraine, which leaves Ukraine itself with the, the middle piece where Kiev is essentially assuming that Russia doesn't take more to the to the east of the Dnieper. So he essentially poses uh, as an, a head of state, posing the possibility that Ukraine ends up getting partitioned by the end of this war, and that it's going to be a landlocked rump state if it still exists at all. Because he doesn't say it's, that that's where it's going to go. He says you'll be left with... Uh, You'll be left with this little piece of land, and he circles the middle of Ukraine. That you'll be, you'll have this little piece of land left, if at all, meaning that he's aware that the possibility 
of Ukraine not existing on the map is clear and present. So that's another very interesting thing to come out of this interview. Because we've been hearing more and more about Ukraine getting partitioned, but n- and in light of that, we've also seen the undertone. It's re- It's been down there. There haven't been that many people saying that Ukraine could be essentially eaten completely. Everyone else, again, I've been almost alone saying that I think Ukraine might not exist by the end of this war. Everyone else who thinks Russia is going to win says that it's going to be rump state Ukraine, rump state Ukraine, rump state Ukraine. Then now we're hearing more and more about Poland moving into Western Ukraine. But now we have Lukashenko, someone who is well acquainted with both sides of this war, someone who is always there during the negotiations and the mediations. He's a major mediating figure here, particularly between Russia and Ukraine saying that there is a good possibility, uh, he's implying that there is a good possibility that if Ukraine doesn't make peace, that if they don't come to the negotiations with everything on the table, no, no preconditions come with everything on the table, if, and if they don't negotiate in good faith, there might not be a Ukraine when this war is over. Now, he's the first person of that stature to say that. Because before, it's just been me, remember? It's just me saying, I don't think Russia wants to take all of Ukraine, but I think that by force of circumstance, that's where this is going to go. And now here we are, where even Lukashenko of Belarus is laying out, and he's not being hyperbolic. He, he does it in his Lukashenko way, where he has, you know, it's very comedic sometimes, but He's very straightforward and direct. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't get your shit together. And the fact that he, as a head of state, with some credibility to his name, is saying that there's a distinct possibility that Ukraine ceases to exist if it continues on the path that it's on, is a a whole step up from just little old me in my little old podcast saying, yeah, you know, I, th- I think Ukraine might not exist on the other side of this one. Yeah, th- this is Lukashenko. So that was a big one. That was a big one. Again, lots of lots of good and useful information to come from this. 45,000 casualties from the offensive, which is way higher than the numbers we were working with. And again, all this is from his own intelligence services. 45,000 casualties. One to eight losses. So for every for every eight Ukrainians that die, one Russian die. Well, one to eight casualties ratio. Which because it, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the death ratio. It wouldn't be the death. The, the death ratio would be even worse because the Ukrainian casualties half half of their casualties are deaths, and only a quarter of Russia's casualties are deaths. So. One to eight casualty ratio, where for every one Russian that gets wounded or dead, you have eight wounded or dead Ukrainians. That's a terrible metric. And these are his numbers from his intelligence agencies. And that that third angle perspective from a country that is right there on the border and has access to info from both sides 
it, which again, it should, this is just a really valuable interview. 45,000 casualties, one to eight losses, one to eight loss ratio, 250,000 volunteers cooperated with our own numbers here. Now, I wish he would have spoken on the Russian mobilization, but at the very least, we can corroborate that those Russian volunteers are in fact in the same quantities that we've been working with. And he says it, they're going to move to Transnistria. They're not going to stop where they are now. They're going to they're not going to stop with Odessa. They're going to go to Transnistria and resolve multiple issues with a, a single stone's throw. And if Ukraine doesn't get its act together, it not only does it get faced with being carved up, because the longer the war goes on, the greater the possibility that Poland steps in and takes the western bits of Ukraine. But if the war goes on and they are just destroyed, they could lose their statehood altogether. Ukraine will be partitioned just like Poland was in the late 1700s. But they, they got split up between Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Ukraine might get split up between Russia, Poland, and Belarus. Or just Russia and Poland, quite frankly. Or, or Russia, Poland, Hungary. Russia, Poland, Slovakia. We don't know. If Poland moves in, what would stop the other NATO members from moving into the West? You know, grabbing a, a little sliver of extra territory. And because and Western Ukraine is rich in mineral resources, the Carpathians are rich in mineral resources. If Ukraine's going to collapse, and if the door is open, why not? Sure, the border might look ugly, but hey, you'll have access to resources boost your own economy, have direct access to Russia now, you know, it's it's there. It's there. But he continues. Uh, and I thought it was interesting as well, before I continue, I thought it was interesting that he talks about how the Ukrainians run at the Russian barricades and don't even reach them. Now, he says that they don't even reach the minefields. Whether that's true across the entire line, I'm not entirely sure. He's probably referring to specific instances where these assaults just go really, really badly. Because we also have, because we also have stories of the Ukrainians getting trapped behind minefields that they were clearing out in the process, that they were in the process of clearing out. Excuse me, the Russians just deploy more mines behind them. So those two stories wouldn't work together unless he was referring to specific instances of them not even being able to reach the minefields. That and so many of their armored vehicles have been blown up by mines that yeah, he's, he's probably referring to really really bad assaults that just decimated that just got absolutely decimated before they even reached the minefields which paints a worse picture in some ways than getting stuck in a minefield only to find out that more mines have been laid behind you so one to eight losses forty-five thousand casualties and in some of these instances they can't even get to the minefield to the minefield let, let alone the, the actual defenses the dug-in defenses where the russians are at they can't even get to the minefields now that's toxic that's something and again a very valuable insight so he continues then uh actually where am i <laughs> i've done all this talking i've lost place of where exactly i am uh yeah he said it's a foregone conclusion lukashenko then said that they needed to stop the war they needed to sit down for negotiations everything on the table and instead of adhering to whatever the united states wants them to do it's instead of doing what their masters in America say, 
they need to act in the best interest of Ukraine, which is common sense. But again, people are emotional, especially people in America. They they don't want to they don't want to see Russia winning, you know, and so they're willing to sacrifice Ukraine to prolong the war and to push that off to the sunset as far as they can and for as long as they can until they can't. And it doesn't matter how many Ukrainians die so long as we don't have to feel uncomfortable about Russia winning, you know. That that's the situation Ukraine is in, and he's right. They need to act in Ukraine's interest instead of us. Ukraine almost had a peace, and it was us who stopped them. Now, what if they had taken that peace instead of listening to us? What if they had acted in their own best interest instead of listening to us? Hell, go back before the the Russian invasion in 2022. Go back to Minsk too. What if they had taken the deal? What if they had taken that deal? You know, it would have been a way better deal. They would have had just about all of Ukraine, not Crimea. But what if they had taken Minsk one and ended the war as soon as it started? Then they would still have Crimea. So at every point, the deal would have been better had they acted in their own best interest, acted rationally, and took decisive action in a way that wasn't self-sabotaging. Now, perhaps you can give them a pass with Minsk one. Two rebel provinces, we can deal with that. Right? You can give a pass with Minsk one, right? But Minsk two, the Russians aren't going to recognize the independence of these republics, and they're going to support you in reincorporating them, and you just have to make peace. Well, shoot, we do that. Why not just do that? I mean, we let the Russians use the port of Sevastopol when it was under us, our control. Certainly the Russians will reciprocate that with us and let us use Sevastopol. Surely we could work out some type of arrangement. I mean, hell, we still have Odessa. Maybe we can work something out. You know, if they're going to be with us in reincorporating the rebel provinces, why not take the deal? Had they acted in their own best interest instead of listening to Germany, France, United States, and, and the Normandy format, that they followed the peace instead of going along with the warmongers who didn't have their best interest in mind. They could have had it all. And here they are today. So he's right when he says that they need to, to, to negotiate immediately and to act in their own best interest. Uh, now let's see. Now, when he was asked, when Lukashenko was asked, who needs the peace negotiations? Uh, is, it the United, is it the West? Is it Ukraine? Is it Russia? He says, we shouldn't refer to the West as a single entity anymore. He says, America doesn't need the negotiations, uh, but that Ukraine does. Now, he, uh, at, a, at a later point in, in the interview, he says that the Europeans, the various Europeans, they have a need for peace because their economies have been ruined by the war. And because the war is in Europe, not in America, they need the peace. Now, I would disagree in him saying that America needs the war. Uh, we don't. <laughs> The war doesn't do anything for us. Uh, it, even under the logic of, oh, we can weaken and hurt Russia, the Russians aren't really weakened. So what's the point of continuing the war when the losses are eight to one? So we don't need the war, even off of that logic. But if we operate off of actual interests of the United States, the United States doesn't have interest in Europe. 
And we certainly don't have interest in Ukraine. So what are we there for? We don't have interest in the war either. Do we have interest in negotiations? Uh, I'm not entirely sure that we do, but we certainly don't have interest in the war. We're not a, we're not an, I would say we're not a party to the war, but we've been arming them and belt feeding them intelligence and ammunition. So I don't think it'd be very fair to say that we're not a party to the war. Oh, well, we're not a party. We're just not, we're just involved. We're involved, but we're not a party. There we go. And I think that's the best way to put it because we're not at war, but we're very deeply involved with the country that is. Do we need to be present at the peace talks? No, we don't. But do we need to be funding and arming Ukraine? Also, no. The United States just doesn't have interests over here. We don't. We neither need nor we neither need the peace nor the war. It's just we don't have a need in Europe. It's it is what it is. So that that's a point of disagreement I have with Lukashenko. But later on in the interview, Lukashenko says he believes that quote. Oh, and he this is referring to the mil, the special military operation of the Russians. He says, quote, the goals have already been met. Ukraine will never behave so aggressively towards Russia after the end of this war as it did before the war. Ukraine will be different. First of all, there will be people in power who will be more cautious, smart, cunning, sensible, who will understand that neighbors are given by God and it is necessary to build relationships with them. I'm sure. And then the future Ukraine will not be a puppet to Americans. That's how I see it. I'm absolutely convinced that Putin thinks so too. I think that's how he understands this process. Now, he also ruled out the possibility of Ukraine getting its territory back. Uh, certainly not the Donbass or Crimea. But that if there was a chance for them to get that, they would have to negotiate with everything on the table. No preconditions, which is what I've said. Again, it's like it's like it's almost uh, almost as if I was listening to myself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he says, and perhaps it's just common sense. If the only chance you have, if you can't beat them militarily, if you want to get the territories back, the only possible other recourse you have is to talk to them about it and try to work out an agreement. Now, of course, it's more likely that they say no, but the talking is the only chance you're going to get because you, you clearly aren't going to be able to get it back military. You're not, you're not getting it back through a military offensive. So talks is the only chance you have of getting the weapon. Uh, I'm getting, getting the territory back. Excuse me. Uh, Carl went off in the back and it uh, derailed my train of thought, but yeah, that's exactly right. Or at least that's what I think. If you want a chance, you have to talk. And it has to be no preconditions. You have to lay everything out on the table. Crimea, Donbass, Kherson, Zaporozhye. Lay it out. Everything's on the table. What do you want? What, what do you want? How can we get this back? Oh, we can't? Okay, well, can we have some sort of resource rights? Can we have some sort of mining rights here? Can, can, we, get our, can we allow our companies in and they work with your companies if you're going to keep the territory? Okay, can we have freedom of movement? within the territories and you know the former ukrainian territories can we have freedom of movement not military but civilian can we have a free flow of trade can we have like a um, can we have like a, a customs union between us and russia can we have access to the russian market you know 
if you're going to lose, at least, at least get something out of the loss, you know, give yourself an incentive to maintain the new peace. Give yourself something to say, look, we fought the good fight. At least we negotiated in the best interest of the Ukrainian people with the reality being that we just couldn't win the war. But we didn't win the war, but we won the negotiations. We got you this, 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 and this. You know, at least try. But they they don't want to do it. And he he also ruled out the and Lukashenko also ruled out the possibility of Ukraine getting its territory back prior to any negotiations. The whole Ukraine has to get all of its territory back, and then we can negotiate. He he ruled that shit out, and then he mocked the the fake peace summit in Arabia, which excluded Russia. And we just talked about that a minute ago and in the last episode and rightfully so these are nonsensical ideas these are unrealistic these are emotional ideas not real but he says that there's still a chance for ukraine but that negotiations needed to take place immediately and he's there's still hope he does believe there's still hope and while i think that events will crush all those hopes i i've been honest look they still have the chance. It's just like Israel with the situation with Palestine and their neighbors. They don't have to go down the current path that they're going on. They can change course if they want to. And it would be better for them if they did. It's just a matter of will they. Now, only time is going to tell. But I think that Lukashenko is just on point with every just about everything he said in this interview. Again, I had that disagreement with his view of American interests and American needs because I'm of the standpoint that America just doesn't have interest in Europe. But that's a disagreement with me. Everything else, I think he is 100% correct. I think so. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.